We are continuing this morning in our study of Acts. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1176, Acts 15. While you're turning there, uh, you will remember from last week we looked at probably the most, one of the most well-known events in the book of Acts, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, the, it will be difficult for us to overstate just how important that council was, that convocation when they came together to decide on uh, what was going on with you know, whether circumcision was necessary or not. Uh, it set the direction for the church moving forward, both theologically but also culturally. It specified that salvation in Christ was all of faith, that the civil and cultic or ceremonial aspects of the law were not understood to be necessary for salvation. That thus, Gentiles were welcomed in on the same basis as the Jews, that is, faith, not keeping the law. At the same time, the council also provided the believers, the churches, wisdom aimed at smoothing some of the difficult parts of life together in Christ. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. How do we live together? Uh, Looking at what happens next, the aftermath of the council. How the Lord used the council to strengthen the church. As always, when we open God's Word together, we need to have the Holy Spirit with us, uh, growing us, leading us, opening our eyes to His truth. So if you're able, would you please stand with me while I pray for exactly that, and remain standing as I read from Acts uh, 15 and 16. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank You for giving us Your Word, Your truth, breaking into our broken world and giving us what we need, giving us Your truth. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Uh, We need your spirit so that we will see clearly, so that we will worship with whole hearts, so that we will understand and apply faithfully this text, this this passage of Scripture. Give us yourself. Let us see your face in it as we worship you through the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts 22. I'm actually going to go, or Acts, excuse me, Acts 15 and 16. I'm going to actually start at verse 22 of chapter 15, just to, which we talked about last week, just to get us back into the context, and then we'll read through the beginning of 16. This is God's Word. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, 
They were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see, excuse me, see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And Paul came to Derbe, also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to, come to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Smart people with the same information, with similarly good intentions, don't always come to the same conclusions. In a now outdated political drama that I used to watch years and years ago, I remember there was a scene early on in the show where uh, a couple of, there's a, there a committee meeting with a whole bunch of economics advisors and they were all there trying to figure out what the best way to predict what was coming and how to plan for it, all of those things, you know, the economics things. I would use the words, but I don't know what any of them mean. So, you know, they were arguing about things. And finally, after some fighting, the chairman of the meeting finally looks at one of the guys and he says, Luther, one year from, de- one year from today, where's the Dow? Tremendous, he says, up a thousand. Fred, one year from today, where's the Dow? Not good, Fred says, down a thousand. The chairman concludes, a year from now, at least one of you is going to look pretty stupid. Now, in the real world, a few years ago, I heard a story about two different men. They both worked in the same department of the same tech company, but in slightly different offices. Each was well-respected for his work, each had, for his work ethic, excuse me, each was considered at least among the smartest people in the, in the company, if not the smartest people in the company. Each knew his area of responsibility backward and forward. And in the nature of their jobs, they had to collaborate with each other regularly on, on individual projects and figure out these things that would affect the entire company. And now, as we think about that, given each man's intelligence, given each man's work ethic and dedication you would probably think that they agreed on the best way to handle these projects, right? I mean, obviously, they've got the same information. They've got the same work ethic and diligence. They're going to come to the same conclusions, obviously. Not so much. My friend was telling me about a a time that he was riding in a car to go to a conference of some kind. He's listening to one side of a phone conversation as one of these men talked with another on the phone for two hours as they argued over the best way to approach the project that they were currently working on. Each man had his proposed solution. And to be honest, either solution probably would have worked just fine, would have accomplished the goal of the project, though neither was perfect. They each had uh, its strengths and weaknesses. And so they argued and argued and argued for two hours in the car 
on top of whatever they'd done while they were in the office, about which of those solutions would actually be best and why. Good men, good intentions, working on the same problem with good effort, yet coming to different conclusions. Now, this is not surprising, right? I'm sure we've all experienced this one way or another, uh, either as one of the participants or at least as an innocent bystander watching people argue over these things. We understand that this is how the world tends to function. But what about the church? Surely the church wouldn't function in this way, right? After all, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. No disagreement could be possible when the Holy Spirit is leading us. If there is disagreement, surely it must be because one of the disagreeers is just less holy and can't see what the Spirit is leading us to as clearly, right? Well, no, obviously not. Um, Obviously, that's not the way it works. In our passage this morning, we have three vignettes that one way or the other are all consequences, downstream effects of the decision of the Jerusalem Council that we looked at last week. First, we're going to see the, the decision of the council reported at the church in Antioch where the controversy had first arisen and kind of the sharpest place of it, followed by a time of settled unity. But then an interpersonal disagreement crops up between Paul and Barnabas. We see how that is handled for good or ill. And finally, Paul, in this third vignette, Paul seems to upend the theological unity that was established by the council for the sake of interpersonal unity, for the sake of avoiding further interpersonal conflict, though I think we'll see there's more going on there than at first might meet the eye. Let's follow the logic of this passage from unity after dispute through division in the midst of unity, finally to unity in diversity. So unity after dispute, division amidst unity, and unity in diversity. We'll follow this through chronologically in the order that the passage is here. So let's look first at unity after dispute. And we've talked uh, over the last several weeks about this period, roughly 20 or so years after, uh, after, Christ, uh, after Pentecost, after Christ returned to heaven, arose. Uh, and the, the growth in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, north into Syria, finally into uh, Cilicia and the, what is now Turkey, modern Turkey. Uh, the Gentile regions of Asia Minor, and and the church then faces its first genuine theological crisis. How would the gospel be understood? New believers from a Jewish background were no problem at all, right? They're already part of kind of the system. They had grown up with the Old Testament sign of the covenant applied, and they, they lived according to the law of Moses, would likely continue to do so because that was their practice, their habit, their culture, That's no problem. The question is this, what about the Gentiles? Would new believers from a Gentile background be required to come to Moses in order to come to Christ? Would they have to become Jews so that they could then become Christians? This is, as we talked about last week, this is a matter of the very most core principles of the gospel message itself, the teaching on salvation. This was not something that could be ignored or swept under the rug in hopes that it would just go away or die down on its own. The church in Antioch has been roiled, stirred up to significant controversy over this. These men from James, or at least so they claimed, on one side, and the well-known teachers who were beloved in that church, Paul and Barnabas on the other side, far from being resolved, the substantive differences between these two positions were just becoming worse. 
becoming more clear, more entrenched. And so they sent representatives to Jerusalem to ask that all be made clear. How should we understand this? Now the answer is coming back. How will the church respond? And it's helpful to see how the Jerusalem church went out of their way to care for the church in Antioch. It wasn't just, you ask this theological question, here's the theological answer, have a nice life. They went out of their way to care for the church in Antioch. They wrote a letter answering the core concern and giving some wise pastoral advice, which we looked at a little bit last time, and we'll look at it in a bit later. Of course, Paul and Barnabas returned with the report of the council, but you know you would expect them to be on the side that they started on, which indeed they are. So they also, the council designated two others, Judas Barsabbas and Silas, to come specifically to explain the council's decision, to explain further all that the letter contained. All good, right? Great. Now we've got it settled, we can move on. Here's the thing. There's something missing from this narrative that would be virtually guaranteed if a similar dispute arose today. Do you see what it is? Do you see what's missing in this passage? What's missing is the frustration, the anger, and even the intransigence of the people who had trusted and believed the Judaizers. If this foundational a debate happened today, we would absolutely expect the church to split over it. You would, you'd, ha, you'd end up with Grace Church over here who followed the council, and just across the street or on the other side of the market or across town or whatever, you'd have the Church of the Faithful who hold to the importance of the Mosaic Law. And they would write all the blog posts and the Twitter screeds and the Facebook whatever and all of the online things and the articles and whatnot on the, about the issue and they would demonize everyone who disagreed with them. We don't see any of that here. Well, obviously not the Twitter online part, but you know what I mean. We don't see any of that here. What do we see? Verse 31. When they had read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, I am sure there were questions, there were explanations, there were folks who were, Paul, Silas, Barsabbas, help us out, help us figure out what's going on here, explain it to us. Judas and Silas were there to answer the questions and explain the council's decision. But at the end of the day, the church at Antioch rejoiced because the letter was an encouragement to them. Now, obviously, for those who agreed with Paul and Barnabas, this makes sense. They were vindicated. We were right. Ha! But for those who followed the Judaizers are also included in this group that is rejoicing and that is encouraged by the council's decision which went against them. This is one of the most important parts of disagreeing with someone in Christ. How do you lose well? There are disagreements. There are fights over theology all the time. Theology is too important for there not to be arguments about it. But how do you respond, both in church, in public, as it were, but also how do you respond in the privacy of your own heart? How do you, when you're on the rebuked side, the losing side, if I can say it that way, how do you, how do you respond? How well do you receive correction? Arguing theology is an everyday occurrence. It is not hard to find people who argue theology, even essential core theology. It's not difficult. But a heart that holds a firm position but is also open to being corrected from God's Word is vastly more rare and precious. That is the heart that we are called to have from Christ. How do we get there? 
How do we get to a place where we can receive correction well? It starts with how we argue. If you've ever had a conversation about, with, with someone about a theological point, you know that most often it produces much more heat than light. Most often, I am not defending the truth, I am defending myself. I'm secretly afraid that I'm wrong. I'm secretly even more afraid that I'll be proven wrong and everybody will see that I'm wrong, which would be utterly mortifying. I'd be so embarrassed if you all saw me be wrong about something. I have bound my identity up in this point that I'm defending. And as a result, I care more about being right than being righteous. Now, I've been describing myself, but I'm, not, I'm quite certain that I'm not alone in that approach to the world. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself here. Whatever. I, I suspect not. Most of us care more about proving ourselves smart and on top of things and having the right answer than we care about finding, discovering, and believing the truth. And what that means is that we stubbornly and arrogantly cling to what I believed and articulated instead of humbly submitting to the truth. On the one hand, I'm overstating this, right? I'm saying this using much more, painting with much more stark colors than might otherwise be the case so that the point is a little bit more clear. Uh, obviously, it's always going to be a little bit more muddled in our hearts, but the reality is that we are all tempted to this unhumble approach to Scripture and theology. But humility is precisely what we need to be able to engage well and to learn. And that same epistemological humility allows us to reunite with our brothers and sisters after the dispute has been resolved. To recognize that now that we've found truth, let's come together, even if that means that I need to humble myself. The church in Antioch rejoiced and was encouraged by the decision of the council, even those who disagreed initially with it. And they were strengthened as they grew in their understanding of the Lord and of the gospel. Judas and Silas stayed in Antioch for some time, uh, stayed long enough that they were able to teach and encourage and build up the congregation there. But then, after they had established that, the congregation released them to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas, who had both been living in Antioch, remained there and, of course, continued to teach and preach the word. Now, they're not alone in that, to be sure. But Luke highlights these two specifically because they were the leading lights there in the church, the primary defenders of the gospel against the Judaizers and because of what comes next. Because a little while later, a few days later, some days later, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how many, but it's clear that it's not a long time later. A few days later, the unity Antioch experienced after the council seems to come apart a bit. It starts simply enough, right? Paul suggests that he and Barnabas return to the churches that they planted. Remember, this issue had been quite a bit more widespread than just Antioch in Syria there. It had also gone to the Galatians. And we know that because Paul wrote to the Galatians all about this issue and didn't mention the Jerusalem Council, so it was clear that that hadn't happened yet when he wrote the letter. So this was a live issue in a lot of places, clearly spread throughout the churches to the north and west. Uh, remember, Derby, Lystra, Pisidian, Antioch are all right there in the Galatian region, so that's the churches that he's talking to. So far, so good. This is a great idea. Let's go encourage these churches that are struggling with this same issue. But Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along with them. 
And Paul is adamantly opposed since Mark had gone with them on their first journey, but left partway through. This is not really a theological difference, though it probably could have been couched in those terms. It really is just interpersonal. It seems to come down to Paul, on the one hand, not trusting someone who had, as Jesus said, put his hand to the plow and then looked back. And Barnabas, on the other hand, remember he's called Barnabas because that means son of encouragement or encourager. Barnabas wanting to give Mark another chance. All we know is that there was this sharp disagreement. They separated, and Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, and Paul returned to, through Cilicia to Galatia and, and takes Silas with him. Now Luke tries to maintain this neutral outlook on the event. Remember a couple of chapters back in 13, chapter 13, I think. Uh, he's recounted Mark's departure, and it's just one sentence dropped into the middle of the narrative. They were, they were here, Mark left, and then they went here, and that and moves on as if it was just no big deal. You'd be forgiven if you'd skipped past that without noticing it. And we now, we've just seen the resolution into grace and unity of a massive dispute over a core issue in the theological structuring of God's people. Now Paul and Barnabas can't even get on the same page over the roster of the mission. Never mind. Okay, we got, we got the message taken care of. That's the important thing. But they can't even decide who's coming with them. I would love to tell you. I would love to tell you. The, the unity following the Jerusalem Council has been the norm for two millennia of Christian history since. But I would be laughed out of the room if I tried. If there is one thing that is certain, it is that Christians will disagree about important and not so important things. And we will not be willing or able to resolve those disputes. Sometimes, by grace, the Holy Spirit intervenes and we get something like the Council of Jerusalem, a mountaintop moment where the church comes together in unity. More often, it is the grind of people who each mean well, who are each diligently pursuing what they see as faithfulness to Christ, as best for the church, but who come to different conclusions and just can't get on the same page. Sometimes this is so minor as to be comical if it weren't so tragic. I heard of a church years ago that needed a new carpet for the sanctuary. You probably know where this is going. So they have this committee and they get together and they work on and they decide a particular type of style of carpet, but then they, they have to decide, are we going to get red or are we going to get blue? The committee couldn't come together, so they took it to the congregation. The congregation couldn't come together and they fought and they fought and they finally split the church over whether to get a red carpet or a blue carpet. As I say, it would be comical if it weren't so tragic. That's insanity. I'm sure we'd all agree. Of course, the other end of the spectrum, there are issues that are important enough to separate over. I'm thinking particularly of things like the, the Reformation and the recovery of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone. Times when the only appropriate th thing is for us to agree to go our separate ways because this is too important, not to, or too important to compromise over. But if those two ends of the spectrum exist, ridiculous on the one side and utterly essential on the other, if those two ends of the spectrum exist, how do we tell where we are on that list in our disagreements? Nobody, none of us want to be the punchline, right? The church that split over carpet colors. How do we avoid it? Well, the first thing I think is to recognize that these disagreements in and of themselves, these disagreements are not necessarily a bad thing. They're just 
part of the way that we live in the world under the curse. The old joke is that wherever two or three Presbyterians are gathered, there will be at least five opinions in the room. Also, we'd form a committee to resolve it, but that's another conversation. God has created us with brains, with reason, with rationality. Created us with different experiences, with different perspectives. Because of that, we must expect we must expect that there will be differences of opinion among the body of Christ. Some certainly because people abandon the faith, but mostly we have differences of opinion among people who are diligently, faithfully pursuing God's faith in Scripture and just come to different conclusions. Because of that, we must expect that there will be differences of opinion, and this is normal and good to an extent. God made us different, called us to bear His image together in community. Community means come with unity together. We are, it is a word that means together togetherness. That's what community is. So the question is not, how do we avoid disagreement? The question is not, how do we avoid disagreement? We're going to disagree. It's going to happen. The only way not to disagree is to go sit in a room by yourself. And even then, you probably won't avoid disagreeing with yourself, but that's another conversation. The question is not, how do we avoid disagreement? The question is rather, how do we respond well when disagreements arise? How do we love each other well in the midst of our disagreements? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the most important guiding principle here is humility in Christ. And C.S. Lewis defined humility once. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not thinking, my opinion is not valuable because I am sinful or I'm not smart or I'm not educated or I'm not important or whatever. That's not humility. True humility is thinking more of others, more about others than you do about yourself. Thinking of them more often, being more concerned with their needs and desires than you are with your own. Again, not wrong to be concerned with your own needs and desires, right? That's appropriate. But to care more for others than we do for ourselves. Trying to put yourself into their head or heart or experience to see the world through their eyes, assuming that their motives are just as pure as yours are. Assuming that they're not trying to destroy the church or pervert the gospel. Now, they may be mistaken in their beliefs, their opinions. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every opinion is equally valid. But they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. Mistaken or not, they are still family. And of course, the converse is true as well. It may be me who is wrong. I may be the one that's got it wrong. None of us gets this right all the time, or even regularly. We, we We get it wrong often, but it's necessary in the midst of this, it is necessary that we trust that as we pursue sanctification and growth in grace, that first, we're going to get better at this. That we are not content to just continue to get it wrong, to continue to sin against each other and against the Lord, that we're going to grow in grace and sanctification and the Holy Spirit is going to lead us to get better at disagreeing with each other. But second, that God will work in and through us in the midst of our disagreements, even in the midst of our sin against each other, to bring about His own good purposes. 
What do I mean? Paul and Barnabas split over whether to include Mark in the journey or not. That's not good. But the Lord uses it in mighty ways to accomplish His good purpose. At the end of the day, there are now two missionary teams sent out from Antioch instead of one. Barnabas takes Mark with him and returns to Cyrus. Paul takes Silas with him and he goes overland into Cilicia and then ultimately to Galatia in the middle of Asia Minor there. Ultimately, Mark is rehabilitated, if I can put it that way, even in Paul's eyes. Barnabas' care for him was enough that Mark is ultimately rehabilitated even in Paul's eyes, so much so that the end of his life, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, do you remember what he says? The end of that letter, after asking Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, he then instructs Timothy, this is chapter 4, verse 11 of 2 Timothy, he says, get Mark and bring him to me soon, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. This is the same guy that he was like, he is not even worthy to come with us as we go preach the gospel. He's cut off. He's taken his hand from the plow and and left. We're done. I'm done with him. Now he says, by the end of his life, get him and bring him to me. I need him. The Lord, through this disagreement, turned one team into two, caused the gospel to be spread further and restored Mark. Does that make the division good? No, of course not. But it shows that the Lord is good despite the division, despite the sin that was present that caused it. The Lord brings light from our darkness. The Lord brings good from our evil. But we must not therefore say, let us do evil that good may come. Paul says of those who say such things, their condemnation is just. We pursue unity in humility. We pursue sanctification and the glory of God even when divisions arise, trusting that the Lord is at work even in those things. Okay, well and good. I think I got that. But then we get to chapter 16 and and we get a, a huge question mark here. What is going on? Paul has been the paladin defending the gospel of justification by faith alone, arguing persuasively that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, that the Gentiles are not required to submit to the Mosaic law. But then almost immediately, it seems, he turns around and circumcises Timothy so that Timothy could go with Paul. And we're kind of left going, wait, 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 hang on, Paul, I'm confused. What are you doing? Didn't you just say that wasn't necessary and now you're making this kid do that? What are you, what's going on? Has Paul become so distraught by the split with Barnabas that he's now willing to join with the Judaizers, even if it means sacrificing the gospel, just to avoid this kind of interpersonal conflict? Obviously not, right? We know better. And I only mention that because that is the perspective of some who, I mean, they say they read the Bible. I have a hard time understanding how they get there. But when they read Acts, they see incoherence and foolishness in the scriptural accounts rather than the hand of God tying things together and, and working. To make a long story short, because we're we're getting to time here, far from defying or rejecting the decisions of the council, Paul instead here is rightly applying the wise advice of the council in the life of Timothy. What do I mean? The necessary corollary of the council is that there are now in the church some believers who had come from a Jewish background and who still kept the law of Moses, and other believers who kept from a, came from a Gentile background who don't. They have radically different assumptions and perspectives on what it means to be faithful to God. 
Paul doesn't circumcise Timothy as a necessary step towards salvation. What the council, and in fact Paul himself, was vehemently arguing against. He doesn't circumcise Timothy as a necessary step towards salvation, rather as a helpful step toward mission. The advice of the council was that Gentile believers should choose certain specific actions or identifying marks, choose to participate in them, even though they weren't necessary, as a way of helping their Jewish background brothers and sisters who were struggling with the people of God not keeping those things. As a way of loving their Jewish background brothers and sisters. The council urged them to, as Paul will later describe his own ministry from 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I got freedom, I can do what I want. I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, he didn't become a Jew. He didn't fully keep the law, but he became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those under the law. He goes on to say, I have become, and this is famous, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. This is what he's doing in Timothy's life. This is the point. It is not that Timothy needed circumcision for salvation or for his own sake. Rather, it would be helpful. It would help him as he goes and shares the gospel with those who were from a Jewish background who knew his family and knew that he wouldn't have been circumcised growing up because his dad was Greek. And so he used, he was, Paul was encouraging Timothy to use his freedom in Christ to serve his brothers and sisters. This is what true Christian unity looks like. We are united in essential things in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone, period. Amen. That is the one truth, the one hope, the one God who calls us and draws us together. That is the basis for our unity together. That's the only reason that we get get together this morning. But we have all been called as very different people into one body together. We have freedom, but not so that we can crush each other in our differences. We have freedom so that we can serve each other, humbling myself so that I can serve you better demanding not my prerogatives and my preferences and my desires, but sacrificing those things as much as needed so that I can serve you and you doing the same to me. This is the call of Christ in our lives, to stand firm for the truth, even as we often sacrifice our personal desires by using our freedom to serve each other. It's both and, right? It is both stand firm for the truth, and recognize how I can sacrifice my desires to serve you well. It's easy. It is easy, and it is expected. The world calls us all day, every day. It is easy to demand my rights, to demand that everyone recognize me as having good ideas and just do what I want, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's easy. The world does that all the time. What would it look like? How powerful a tool for the gospel would it be if we could combine utter confidence in the truth of Scripture with humble, sacrificial, servant hearts and lives? What would that look like? How attractive to the world would that be if we had the truth and also humble hearts? 
This is the call of Christ in your life, to become more like Christ, even in disagreements. We get this wrong all the time. We get it wrong all the time. In our disagreements, we sin against God and we sin against each other regularly. We divide over silly, small, stupid things. And then we stay united despite massive attacks on the gospel itself. But when we sin, the grace of Christ abounds all the more. At the end of the day, our unity is not in our similarities. It is not in agreement over cultural niceties. At the end of the day, our unity is with, e- with each other is because we are each united to Christ by His blood. Our unity with each other is because we are united to Christ by His blood. And that depends entirely not on your work, not on your right theology. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Right theology is good. You should still pursue that. But your status in Christ, your union with Christ, does not depend on your having the right theology. It doesn't depend on your having the right practices. It depends on the work of Christ Himself alone and nothing more. It depends entirely on His finished work and not on anything that you or I could do or say or think or want or whatever. Let us rest in Christ together. And as we do, let us pursue each other humbly, despite our disagreements. Let us pursue each other humbly so that we might together grow in sanctification and become more and more like our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that in the midst of our foolishness and disagreements, you love us still. You sanctify us. You give us your spirit to grow us in grace. Let us pursue you and pursue each other faithfully. We need your grace for it, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.